This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we look back on the life of reggae star Bob Marley as he's honoured with a blue plaque in London. It is the first uh, official plaque that's gone up to uh, Bob Marley by English Heritage. He's a global superstar, been described as the first superstar from the developing world. We hear about the singer's special relationship with the capital. He first came in the early part of 1971 as a session musician and he returned later that year to meet the uh, boss of Island Records who gave him £4,000 to record Catch a Fire and that's the album that essentially launched his career. And we'll discover how the idea for his blue plaque came about. More from our senior historian for blue plaques, Howard Spencer, in just a few moments. But first, here's a brief signpost to what you can hear soon on the English Heritage Podcast. We can be very blasé about the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest. And actually, if crowds come to this show, they will get a very good overview of the history. I think what it does quite simply is it brings this phenomenal day in English history to life. We hope that people who are interested in taking selfies maybe will come to Kenwood for the first time. We've never done anything quite like this before, or with the Rembrandt at Kenwood. So, yeah, it's going to be very exciting. If you want to get to the core of Wellington's collection, this room tells you a lot, with lots of Spanish, Dutch, Italian, Flemish, French art. This is a true collector's house. And make sure you subscribe to get brand new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week, we're shining a light on our new blue plaque to honour a musical legend. Bob Marley was reggae's first international star. And as some have previously put it, Jamaica's first son. But although he was born more than four and a half thousand miles away, the singer, songwriter, poet and guitarist had a special affinity with London. And that's according to his widow, Rita. Now English Heritage is recognising that connection with a blue plaque in his honour. Joining us to talk about the artist and his time in the capital is senior historian for English Heritage Blue Plaques, Howard Spencer. Howard, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Now, if I can ask you, first of all, there seem to be quite a few plaques in London linked to Bob Marley, which have been put up by other organisations. Is this the first recognition of Bob by English Heritage? And what's the motivation behind that? Uh, yes, it is the first uh, official plaque that's gone up to uh, Bob Marley, put up by English Heritage. I guess, I mean, the mo- motivation in terms of his worldwide fame is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, he's a global superstar, been described as the first superstar from the developing world. And we've actually been keen to get a plaque up to him for some years. The real challenge for us is that we put quite a heavy burden of proof on our cases. And Bob Marley was quite difficult to pin down. If you think about it, we usually use sources like electoral registers, phone books, letters, diaries and so on. And in his case, he leaves a very sort of light imprint on the written historical record. So it took us quite a while to pin down what we regarded as good evidence for um, where he was living. So that's why it's, it's taken a while for this to happen. You've had to choose a particular spot, I presume, because he did live in various different locations. Where is the English Heritage Blue plaque? 
Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, we we try with every plaque we put up to choose what we think is the most appropriate location, and there are a number of factors in that. I mean, length of residence is one of them. Others are visibility. Obviously, there's no point in putting a plaque up where nobody or hardly anybody's going to see it. Uh, and also, we want to reference a point in that person's career that was particularly vital. And and I like to think we've done that in this case. Um, okay. Plaques gone up in Oakley Street in Chelsea, number forty-two Oakley Street which is where Bob Marley lived in 1977 for about five months in the early part of 1977. And he lived there while he was recording the album Exodus, which I think is still regarded by many as his best. Uh, He also wrote a lot of the tracks for the succeeding album Kaya while he was living there. He lived there with the entire band. The Whalers were all all there too. It was a a four-story house, then used as a sort of uh, furnished guest accommodation, which the record company hired on their behalf. They hired it, incidentally, partly because of its proximity to Battersea Park, because Bob Marley, as he's quite well known, was a massive massive football fan, loved to play the game. Yes. And he particularly asked to be near a place where he could go and play football, and, and that's what the band did for much of their much of their days they would they would often get up sort of late morning go and play football in the park and then go and record into the early hours that was their kind of daily routine while they were there sounds like a great life doesn't it really and Bassey Park is enormous um, and there's plenty of football pitches I know because I strolled through there once and they're playing Sunday league football so good good choice Bob I would say <laughs> This time in Chelsea, do, do we have any other sort of references to Bob while he was living in Chelsea? Uh, he was playing football, obviously. He was um, hanging out with the Whalers and, and living at that property. But does Chelsea have any other sort of links to him? Well, I guess at that time, Chelsea was a place that was associated with the nascent punk movement, which was uh, sort of well, got, got going in 76 and was sort of in full swing by... 77. I think purist punks would probably say it was over by 1977, actually. But it was it was a sort of centre for that. And of course, another group of people that, that Bob Marley hung out with at that time were The Clash. Uh, and he referenced in a, in, in a song uh, written in later 77 called Punky Reggae Party, which was a, a sort of a reference to the fusion between punk and reggae that, that took place. It's worth saying, too, how he, how he sort of ended up in London on, on this occasion, because he came more or less as a refugee. He got mixed up in Jamaican politics, which were then going through a particularly violent phase. And in December 76, there was an attempt on his life. He was, he was shot and, and injured, not, not badly injured, but he was hit. Was he performing and at the time? Or? He was not. This happened at his home, which was uh, 56 Hope Road in Kingston, Jamaica. He was, he was very associated with the People's National Party, which was then led by Michael Manley and he'd sort of taken part in, 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 in various events and so on. And this riled the opposition and some uh, sort of hooligan elements from the, oppo- the, the opposition party turned up and did this and were apparently later summarily executed, which gives you a flavour of the sort of, well, rather wild nature of, of, of Jamaican political life at that time. Marley, in the meantime, was spirited away first to Nassau and then on to London under the offices of his his record company, Island Records. And it was they who, uh, first of all, they found them a berth, him him a berth actually sort of on the King's Road. I think it was number 333 King's Road where he first went to. And then they found the the larger house at 42 Oakley Street where the entire band could stay. So he's basically taking refuge in London, really, trying to get away from politics in Jamaica and any sort of, as you say, hooligan elements. That's that's right. That's correct. And, it, and it's interesting how many um, blue plaques to London visitors are to people who came 
in essence as refugees of one sort or another and so he he joins that group so why did he eventually leave london to return to jamaica because he didn't obviously come over here permanently did he no, he didn't, and I guess he never intended to do that. I mean, Jamaica was his home, and he, he you know, felt very strongly about that. And he was actually asked at the time in, in, in London by a journalist, do you fear a further attempt on your life? And he said he didn't, and he said, what is be must be. So he's sort of philosophical about it. Any famous songs that he wrote while spending time in London? Because am I right in saying that he, he came over a couple of times? It wasn't just the one time when he was a refugee and then went back. I think he he had a sort of long-term affinity with London, didn't he? That's right. No, I mean, 77 was by no means the first time he, he came to London. He first came in the early part of uh, 1971, and that was as, as a session musician for the singer Johnny Nash. And he returned later that year to meet Chris Blackwell, the uh, boss of Island Records, who gave him £4,000 to record Catch a Fire. And this was with the original Whalers, who were a three-piece. It was, it was Bob Marley. Bunny Livingston and Peter Tosh and they recorded that album that's the album that essentially sort of launched his career so I think in that way you could say that London was pretty important to his career. You've mentioned a couple of the songs that he wrote while he was in Chelsea but are there any other songs that we might recognise from uh, his time in London whenever that was? He definitely wrote uh, Is This Love from the Kaya album in London that was that's recorded by his manager Don Taylor in his memoirs and I believe he wrote a number of the other songs for, for, for Kaya. I think while Exodus was recorded in London, he'd actually written most of the songs for that uh, by that point. So obviously he's written a few songs in London. It's inspired him in some ways. But did he have any other sort of inspirational life moments that happened while he was in London? Did he meet anyone special or...? Well, I think, yes, in, in, in that sense, the, the most important uh, encounter was with Miss Jamaica, uh, Cindy Breakspeare, who he had a relationship while he was in London in, in 1977, and they had a child together, Damien Marley. Overall, then, how much of his life did he spend in London? Because uh, he lived till the age of about what? He was only in his early 30s when he died. Uh, I think he was 30, 36, actually. Yes, he was 36 when he died. So was he spending he, quite a lot of time in London versus Yes, I mean, Jamaica? I think be- between that first um, visit and, and 77, I mean, he was there again in 71, 72. He was living in Neasden. That's when he first went to visit Chris Blackwell at, at Island Records. Then he was back in, in 73. And I believe there were spells in the, in the summer of 74 and 75 when he's supposed to have been in London too. As, as I've said earlier, the, the records are not entirely clear. So we're, we're a little bit hazy on dates. I think overall, though, he probably spent about 18 months of his life in London, I'd say so. And there were, also, there were also shorter periods after 77 when he came back on tour and so on and for shorter visits. Staying uh, on one occasion, I believe, at the Jamaican High Commission, at that point he'd, he'd become obviously a very uh, important figure and was also quite a sick man by the end of his life. Really, what was happening there then with his health? Well, unfortunately, he, he got cancer. He, he, uh, it was actually in 77 that he, he had a toe that was thought to be initially septic and it turned out to be cancerous. And he wouldn't countenance its amputation because that would have stopped him playing football and would have rendered him somewhat immobile. And he sought sort of alternative dietary treatments, which didn't work. And he died in May 81, uh, as I say, at the age of 36. And did he die back home in, in Jamaica? He died in Florida uh, en route back to Jamaica, actually. Yes, yes, he'd been seeking treatment in uh, in America and he died on, on his way trying to get home, but he never got there. 
Oh, that's quite a sad end then, really. Yeah, it is. It is. In researching all of this, Howard, you've obviously developed a lot of knowledge about Bob Marley, but were you already a fan before you started? Well, I was, yes. I, I was, I've been a fan since the age of 11, uh, which, which is when my, my friend at primary school got me into uh, Exodus and jamming. So, yeah, and I was, I was already, already quite, a, quite a fan of his. Is there anything you picked up during your research for the Blue Plaque, which you didn't know when you were growing up as a big fan? Well, I didn't. I didn't know that he was so heavily linked to London. I mean, this this has all been pretty much news to me. I mean, uh, I could name you some other other places that are connected with him that I that I found in in the course of my research. I mean, it's worth saying that there are. You mentioned in passing earlier that there are other plaques to him, and they are put up privately. And they're at the at the Circle in Neasden, which is as I, I mentioned earlier, he stayed there in sort of seventy one, seventy two. Also from the from the 1972 stay, he stayed in Ridgemount Gardens in Bloomsbury, which is just to the west of Gower Street. Uh, and there's a plaque there put up by the Nubian Jack Trust, which marks his, his stay there. Un, and un, unmarked addresses, there is 12A Queenborough Terrace in Bayswater, which is where we believe he stayed in, in his, his very first visit and I think also went back there. Uh, so this was in 71 and, and 72. Other addresses he was connected with were the, the Island Records office, uh, where he was given that uh, healthy four grand to go a- away and record an album. Uh, and that was at St Peter's Square in Hammersmith, number 22. Uh, there was also a recording facility out the back that he used, which was known as the Fallout Shelter, because it, it had no windows. Furthermore, there, there was the recording studio at Basing Street, uh, more re- recently known as Psalm West, uh, which was undergoing some pretty serious renovation last time I, I passed. But it's it's the place, it's a converted chapel, and it, it was used for many other things. I mean, the, uh, the Band-Aid single was recorded there and so on. I mean, many, many artists have recorded there, and there's a mural opposite which features Marley, among other people who've, who've recorded there. And perhaps the most interesting and curious connection of all is with Peckham Manor School. Uh, in the early 70s, Marley went and performed at, at, at a school in Peckham, uh, which no longer exists, but the site of it was in Cato Street in Peckham, and I believe uh, the site of it is now occupied by a, a youth centre called the Damalola Taylor Centre. Mm. So all these places you know, have this Bob Marley connection, of which I, when I started my research, I had no idea. There are a lot of connections there. If you were looking at a map, I suspect there would be dots all over the place. Uh, it's not like he just frequented certain areas, like 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 the south of London, which you might expect, you know, to connect with potential fans. He seemed to be all over. You know, Chelsea is quite a nice nice area. Well, the Chelsea of nineteen seventy seven was rather different to to what it it, it is oh, now. Right. I mean, I think I think I think it's it's sort of as it were um, gone up in the world socially since then. I mean, you have to remember that Chelsea was. Uh, a sort of artist's hangout in the in the 19th century and, and into the early 20th century and only got its sort of smart reputation more more recently. But yes, he, he had a number of addresses in Chelsea. He also stayed in, in places in, in Earl's Court, sort of around there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, because Neasden is, is kind of way up north and, and not somewhere you'd, you'd sort of immediately think of. And well, um, Earl's Court kind of west, isn't it? That's right, yes, yes. I mean, just, just a bit sort of north and west of, of, of where he was in Chelsea. There were a number of fairly short-term addresses there in the in the later 70s that he stayed in. So anyone listening to this right now who's heard all those places and wants to plan a trip, uh, if they're a Marley fan, those are some of the places that they could sort of plot in 
to um, Google Maps or something and, and, and do a little bit of, bit of a tour. But there's also the Blue Plaques app, isn't there? So what, what's the best way of um, planning your Mali trip? <laughs> well, the, yeah, the Blue Plaques app will only feature the, the, the one that's, uh, that's going up in, in Oakley Street, the one that's, that's, uh, that we're commemorating him with. But yes, it, it, it certainly will be included on the app, which has all... We're nearly at 950 official plaques in London now, and they're all on there. Uh, and and in, recorded in such a way that it's pretty easy to devise your own tours wherever you happen to be, really. And the Marley plaque will also feature in the second edition of the English Heritage Guide to London's Blue Plaques, which is a book that's coming out in November. Regarding where else you could join the dots with Bob Marley, um, I understand there are a few road names that um, might bear his name. I understand there might be a Bob Marley Way in Brixton and, and there's probably a few mu- murals dotted around in South London as well. I, I, th- I, think, I think there are. These aren't necessarily places that he actually visited, but nonetheless, if you, if you were planning a full Bob Marley London itinerary, it would, it would certainely be good to visit those as well. Obviously, it sh- just shows how much he means to people. Absolutely. A bit like the David Bowie one, which is also, I think, in Brixton. So what is Bob Marley's legacy, would you say, as a musician and historical figure? Well, I think he, he's been rightly described as the first superstar from the developing world. So I think that's the first thing. And I think he, he's, he's really the single most important person to have put reggae music into the mainstream. He's a global superstar. It's hard to uh, say more than that, really. His widow, uh, Rita, said that he had a special affinity with London. And have you kind of developed a bit more of an affinity, even though you were a fan of, of Bob? And have you sort of developed more of an appreciation for his life and work through your research on this blue plaque? Oh, story? definitely, yes. I think I think so. It's, it's, it's good to read about the sort of details of the connections and also to go a bit deeper into his catalogue. I mean, some of his music has become very familiar. In fact, one might say even over-familiar. I mean, it's very hard to walk into a, a coffee shop these days and not hear One Love. But there's there's a lot more other stuff, particularly the sort of older material, which doesn't get so readily played. And it's it's been, it's been a bit of a spur to me to go and listen to some of that. And I suppose the last thing would be that you don't often associate blue plaques with someone who is still a fairly recent historical figure. Is English Heritage looking to sort of introduce people who we might know from the 20th century now? Well, that's kind of, that's already happened in a sense. I mean, we put up plaques to people like Freddie Mercury, who are also sort of people of a a similar kind of generation, who just happened to have been unfortunately taken from us very young. So it's the same rules for everybody. You have to be 20 years deceased, the idea being that that then allows reputations to settle and we're making a sort of mature judgment about where somebody sits in the sort of pantheon of of our uh, our heroes and so on but so uh, yeah no, the rules are the same for everybody but so but we're very happy to get any suggestions of people that that pass that basic criteria and who have a surviving address in london that's associated with them can i suggest david bowie then perhaps or will Will people suggest David Bowie? I next, think, think? I, think his, I think his time will come. I mean, he ha- he's not been deceased for 20 years yet. But uh, of course, I think I think when that happens, I think his time will, will certainly come. I mean, clearly he's a, he's a figure of great global influence and impact. So I would have thought he would definitely get a plaque at some point. It might not happen if he doesn't have a building. <laughs> yeah. So we need to we need to be a little bit circumspect. In fact, I do know that quite a lot of Bowie's. Uh, original homes have been demolished which oh, is right. uh, could present a bit of a challenge when the time comes i expect well, i'll be retired by then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. bearing in mind all these artists who are being recognized now are there any others who perhaps could be honored with blue plaques in london or elsewhere in the future 
Well, there are, there are many names that, that could come up, of course. I mean, I think the, the, the problem that you've got is is in the sort of post-war pop culture is that is you've just got such a huge variety of names and that uh, assuming the blue plaque scheme continues in the way that it is now, we've got to be very selective. But people whose influence has clearly been very large and on a global scale, that's the sort of people we'd be looking at honouring in, in the future, I would think. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information about London's blue plaques and who else might get one soon, head over to the English Heritage website. There you can also read about how Bob Marley was honoured with his blue plaque. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. See you next time.